taped live in Burnaby on December 3rd, 2019. It's the BCGU podcast pilot episode zero zero. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Of course, a huge welcome to our audience. Probably uh, playing this back delayed from your vehicle or uh, the gym, hopefully. Stand fit. Uh, My name is Stefan Avliash. Uh, I am in here for one special time only for this uh, tech run version of the BCG podcast. Uh, I'd love to introduce you to our regular host, uh, longtime listener, first time caller, uh, Paul Finch. How are you, Paul? I'm doing good. It's fine. Thanks. <laughs> nice. Uh, who else do we have in the basement today, Paul? Uh, we've got Emma Pullman, who does capital stewardship with the union. Nice. And so well, I think the idea was we were, we were going to do a run on the affordable housing stuff this episode, but because we've got Emma here and the three of us are down here listening to Sandstorm, apparently. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, might as well might as well uh, go over some of the some of the work that Emma's doing at BCGU on capital stewardship. That's pretty pretty groundbreaking. Emma, welcome. Hello. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. People will know. Actually, probably there isn't anyone that doesn't know Emma and I, longtime friends, longtime co-conspirators, uh, reunited at the BCGU, and it feels so good. It does feel so good. It's it's a real honor to work alongside you, comrade. <laughs> it's a pleasure to work with you too, but. All the pleasantries aside, we're here to talk about BCG's investment and the capital stewardship program that Emma leads. So why don't we just jump right into it, Paul? Can you maybe set the scene for us? You know, what's the deal with the BCG's investment? Why do we have a capital stewardship program? Back in 2014, you know, we had a big change of leadership in the union. And obviously, there's a lot of subsequent changes in how we managed our investments. And I brought forward a, a whole suite of changes around how we did investments and, and we, we left our investment manager, we did a search, we got a couple new ones and we basically diversified our investments and our, sorry, we diversified our investments. And when we did that, we also, I made a push to divest those out of fossil fuels. And part of that push of divesting those of fossil fuels was to go to our Canadian equities manager and get them to create a segregated fund that basically was, was not where we had a negative screen where we could basically say, don't invest in anything like, that we don't want in it, like energy utilities. And, and had the union done any of this type of investment before? Is this no? This is, a, this is this is kind of breaking new territory for the union. So, so, so when you walked in there and said, "I want to put a negative screen on stuff," were people like? So, uh-huh. so initially, so the executive at the time voted it down. I brought it forward again, and then it it passed the second time. And then the, the, the company was really resistant. They were against it. And so they actually refused. The, the company being the, the investment manager. Yeah. They, so they actually refused to create a segregated fund. And so we just pulled our money out into a cash position. And then they, they called us up and they said, okay, if, you know, if we create this segregated fund for you, will you put your money back in to our, in, to our investment management firm? We said yes. And so when we did that, what it did was is it created a segregated fund where we weren't in a pool with a bunch of other clients, which meant that for the first time we could con- theoretically control the proxy votes. And I think that shortly after that, it's when me and Emma started talking about 
some cool things that we could do with those proxy votes. And I think there, there was a long conversation there and eventually. I think numerous long conversations. Numerous long conversations. Yeah. At 33 acres. And <laughs> uh, I think, and eventually. This podcast sponsored by 33 acres. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. And eventually um, we ended up contracting with some of us and Emma was one of the primary people on that contract. Do you find when you go out there and you speak to members about, you know, this is what the union is doing with, with, with their investments. I know I personally run up, you know, when we're doing public advocacy campaigns, like on the housing campaign, folks saying, how is this the business of the union? Shouldn't you just be servicing members? Shouldn't you just be negotiating contracts? How does this help us? Well, I, th- I think ultimately, you know, there's been a broad project across the union to better connect with our membership and, and to better engage them. And, and that's part of a process of further democratizing. And we're already a very, very democratic institution. I'd say one of the most democratic in society, but we, we still want to get a lot better at it. And, you know, one of those means making sure that when every member joins the union, they get a thorough introduction into that and they understand their their rights and responsibilities and, and what they can access. And and so a lot of the time, uh, no, people don't get introduced to a lot of this work, but a lot of the fundamentals, and, you know, and I'll put it this way, you, you know, your question was like, is this the core business of the union? And if anyone's read our const, the first, the first uh, page of our constitution, you know, the answer is yes. Because the, the, the purpose on which our union is founded is written out under the objects of the Constitution and explicitly states that looking after the interests of all working people, uh, engaging in social justice movements, this is actually written into our founding document. So, and it's written there very, very consciously. It's because we're, we don't, we don't exist in isolation, right? We understand that a union is first and foremost, a politically representative organization for working people. And that the number one political demand that working people have is wages and benefits and retirement security. Like that, that that's the number one kind of political demand, but it's not the only political demand. And, and we've seen that time and time again, right? Whether it's justice for women, justice for, you know, marginalized people's justice for people in the LGBTQ community, whether or not it's a broader expansive issues around occupational health and safety, fundamental freedoms that we want to see across society. There's, there's been an expansion of that work that is an extension of our core values and the values that makes us democratic. You can't have a democratic organization where entire sectors are excluded from participation. Same thing with society. And more importantly, we've got these massive sectors of the economy that have a, f- a failed governance model where there is no say really, you know, there's very little say even from a lot of shareholders. And so, in order to have a say, working people, people that, you know, have to have basically have democratic structures that can aggregate their capital, aggregate, the, you know, the shares of what they have in these companies and speak on their behalf. And uh, this is the best way to this is one of the best ways to do that. OK, so for the uninitiated like me, what's a proxy vote? Why does it matter? How does it work? Emma, can you please inform me? Yeah. So, I mean. The, the basic 101 is that if you're a shareholder, you have some basic rights. You can attend an AGM or appoint someone to attend for you. You get to vote on the business at the AGM. So those are things like potentially who their auditors are, who if their directors are going to be reappointed and other kind of key pieces of business before the company. You can also ask questions of the company. And then these are issues that will then get voted at in front of all the folks at the company. And and it's a great way to initiate a conversation with the company about, about things that are going on in the company and how the company might enhance its performance on key issues. So some of those issues might be related to governance. How is the company being governed? Is there 
Is the company exposed to any risks and how it's being governed? Is the CEO his own boss, her own boss? Does the company have virtually no or no um, women on the board of the company? Could the company's performance be enhanced if it had more women and more representation on the board? Does the company have an environmental policy? Is it at risk for not having it? And essentially in all of these, we are talking about presumptive risk. We're talking about is the company exposed to risk that could affect shareholder value? And so that is what we get to what we get to do in, in our in our position as an investor is to ask is to is to attend these meetings. And you know, I think a lot of the time we don't understand how these financial systems work. We don't understand how these companies work. For a long time, we've kind of not been invited into these rooms. We aren't invited into these rooms. And so we don't know how these companies operate. But the thing is, we are the people that run these companies. We are the workers. We are the investors. We are the public who buy the products of these companies. And and if we realize our potential and our power in this situation, we could we can influence how these companies operate and we can make them do better. And it both protects our investment and it's also just the right thing to do. Uh, sorry, I just want to go back to something that you were talking about, Paul. So you mentioned that you were having these conversations with Emma. Emma, was some of us doing any of this work before or to your knowledge, was anyone in Canada doing this work before? I mean, so some of us was doing this work and there are a couple of, of groups that, that do this work in, in different capacities. And I think that this work is underutilized as as a tool and a lot of a lot of organizations, a lot of investors, a lot of a lot of folks don't use this as a resource. And so even though many folks, many labor unions, many organizations are, are investors in companies, um, they underutilize this would be my my assessment. When we were first going to divest our funds, the argument that was posed against it was, well, look, don't don't divest your money from fossil fuels because then you lose your voice at the table. And what we found was one, you know, no one was using their voice for the most part that that, that was on the receiving end of that argument, which is a very, very bad argument because people weren't using their voice as shareholders, but also weren't divesting. We did both. We decided to divest and use our voice as shareholders. And I attended this conference, the Committee on Workers Capital, and it's, it's actually a really great initiative that the Canadian Labor Congress back when. Canadian Labor Congress used to have a presence in the international stage and, and the international secretary, it's based here in Vancouver. And uh, I went to this conference with all these uh, basically people involved in pension funds and, and workers capital across the world for the first time. I met with people who are struggling with issues that came back to workers capital and Canadian pension funds that was being that was invested in companies that were hurting the interests of workers in a way that damaged the, you know, the reputation. There was a lot of reputational risk involved. And so we actually intervened in a couple of cases as a direct result of that that first meeting and, and had very successful results. And I think, well, that's a very different kind of shareholder engagement. And it's one we still do to this day. You know, we helped uh, save two defined benefit pension plans for some workers across the seas. And, you know, and it, and it really, it, but it, what it kind of did was brought home to our executive here at the, at the union that, that this is powerful and important work. And, and being a pretty democratic, democratically driven organization, our last convention in 2017, we faced a pretty direct uh, series of questions from our members, which is it's great you guys are making all this money from being divested, that our investments are doing really, really well. But, we want to know that it's ethically invested. It was incredible, you know, and, and it created an incredible amount of political capital for the subsequent budget, which which we put together a few months after that um, for it was a 2018 budget to say, look, like, let, let, let's make sure that we up our game on that. And, and I think that that's what helped really solidify moving that program forward. Mm-hmm. So 
you've been here for a year now. Mm-hmm. Well, what kind of mischief have you gotten up to? Uh, I mean, it's been a, it's been actually a really great year and I have been just so fortunate to get to execute this really powerful vision of our union leadership. They have a bold vision for this work and a strong mandate from our members from convention to kind of engage in this work. And it's been a real joy to kind of help advance it. And so we have, I think, really expanded this work in a way that we haven't before. So, you know, in the last couple of years, we've filed a handful of proposals and we've we've uh, attended AGMs. We've we've done negotiations with a number of companies on, on issues ranging from it, the environment to uh, human rights to plastics and pollution toxics. And this year are filing more proposals than we than we have before by a by a long shot. And so we have filed as of this week four proposals another in the coming month and then a handful more beyond that and i think that we are filing on on uh, issues of critical importance to uh, the union to canada to the world issues related to human rights to the detention of children and migrants in the United States relating to whether or not there should be a vote on how executives at companies are compensated, about whether or not companies should have policies on climate change, about whether or not there are business risks of doing business with ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement in the United States. Some really interesting and and provocative issues that I think are really critical in this kind of current climate to be talking about. And at the same time, we're also expanding this work in an interesting way beyond looking inside of our current portfolio and filing shareholder proposals with with those with those equities. We're actually thinking beyond that and thinking what other companies should we should we have in our portfolio and what other opportunities are there for advancing the interests of working people. And I think that's so so beyond powerful. And I'm so excited. One of the things we've done is we've actually purchased shares in a number of companies that we represent workers at. <laughs> and I think that's a huge move uh, in the right direction. Yeah. And, and you know, there, there's so much workers capital tied up and stuff. I mean, the, the amount of money that we're dealing with is, is relatively small compared to what's, what's out there, but, but they're funds that are directly under our control. And, and one of the reasons they're directly under control in a, in, a special, in a proxy voting way is because we're in the segregated fund. And I think that we want to leverage that as much as we can and, and pretty happy with the results we've seen. We've had some great shareholder uh, vote results. We've had some good engagement with companies on it. And I think, it, to be frank, it's something our members expect that we're making these amazing returns and it costs such a small fraction of those returns to do this work that, you know, why wouldn't we? And and to be frank, I, th- I think it protects and enhances our investment at the end of the day. Absolutely. You know. I, you know, we, yeah. we have, you have a thesis that, you know, that companies that are ethically grounded like this are going to in the long term perform better. And we're long term investors. You know, we're, we're not a hedge fund. We're, we're not, we're not actively managing any of these equities ourselves or bonds or anything. We're, we're simply contracting with these investment management firms. But so for us, we have a long term view of investing in the market. And as long term investors, you know, we, we really, we fundamentally believe that we're de-risking the portfolio by engaging in these reputational risks and these other direct governance risks, environmental risks. And, and the same, it's the same, you know, ideology behind our divestment, right? We, you know, we, we believe that there was, you know, a, a serious risk involved with the volatility in, in the energy and utility sector in Canada. And to be frank, we were right. And as a result, we made millions of dollars for the union. 
Okay, I know Emma. You you mentioned that there's other uh, other organizations, other groups that have been doing this. Can you tell me a little bit about the history? Well, I would say that in other parts of the world, and particularly in the United States, folks, including the labor movement, has been engaged in this type of work. And I would say that on the whole, the labor movement in Canada is is vastly underrepresented in this body of work. And I would say that BCGU is definitely the the kind of pack leader in doing this kind of work. There is, to my knowledge, not a person who who is doing the kind of work, a, a person or a department um, who's doing the kind of work that we're that we're doing on this on this issue on capital stewardship. And I would say, on the whole, if you compare the kind of breadth and history and quantity of shareholder engagements that happen just in the United States to Canada, it is by many factors of, of magnitude different. And, and I would say that we are underutilizing it as a resource. And I think I said that before, but I'll say it again. I think that we have been intentionally kind of this, this kind of understanding of how these companies operate has been intentionally obscured from us because the more we understand, the, <laughs> probably the more that we'll, we'll understand how, how unjust and how undemocratic a lot of these companies operate. And if we truly understand what our power is as workers, as, as consumers, as, as investors in the labor market, in these companies, we would understand that we had a lot of opportunities. And so I think that I, I'm excited to see BCGU kind of ahead of the pack on this because I, I both think it's the right thing to do for investment, as Paul said, but also I hope that we inspire other folks to be thinking about doing this work in the future because I think it's really important. You know, we are, this is one way to advance the the needs and lives of working people. And I think that it's one tool that, that we, sh- that, that more folks should be using. I just had a thought while you were saying that, because I mean, you know, obviously I agree with you, but let's pretend that it, I'm going to put on my Orthodox Leninist hat here and say, why is the union engaging in, in investment and putting money in some of these terrible companies, companies that are so terrible, right? You know, someone might say, why do you think you can wield this power when this power is meant only to be wielded by the worst people, right? So what's, what's the point of putting money into these terrible companies of trying to change them from within when really they're just going to take workers' capital and be irresponsible with it? Didn't, didn't Lenin institute the new economic program? <laughs> yeah, no, sorry. Just I should have said Orthodox Trotskyist. No, I don't know. Didn't Trotsky help implement the new economic program? No, no you, yeah. you know, we're kidding. I mean, but well, you, know, yeah. you know what I'm saying, right? Like, you, you'll get these people who will say, because we're on the left, we shouldn't use any of the tools of our of our opponents because they're designed for opponents to exploit us and the whole our, master's tools thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think that it, people are going to be wondering that. So, so the, I think the idea that these that tools too. are owned by one class of people, or they derive or exist from one class of people, when in fact the structures and and the I'd say like the social inheritance of this knowledge of you know what's called accounting and bookkeeping and, and this kind of stuff, which is driving this stuff is not specific to one class of people or to one culture or, you know, it, you know, really, really it's, it's, it's a common social inheritance. And, and really what we're seeing is a monopolization of the fruits of some of these skills that have been selectively applied with some very violently enforced policies in different parts of the world that that's creating the situation. And so 
you know, I, I never, I never see a lot of that wa- argument never holds a lot of water for me. I mean, it's like saying, you know, oh, well, if you, if you're critical of, you know, um, carbon heavy investments, you shouldn't use a cell phone because there's plastics involved or something like, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's derivative and it, it's, it doesn't, you know, that argument, it doesn't engage with reality. Right. You know, like if, if you're worried about pollution, ride a bike, it's not, it, it's a fundamentally individualist concept that kind of ignores just the inherent collective social nature of our society and our collective responsibility to, to be able to make decisions about how, how we're governed and how our economy is run. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, on that, on that note of how our economy is run at the end of the day, there are still fundamentally, if this is about workers, you know, there are workers at these companies and one aspect of that is that we are trying to enhance their lives and create, better working conditions for folks. And then I, I mean, I think that this, this, this question is a, is a tricky, is a tricky square to circle or whatever you would, would, would say, because I think that there's, there's some cases in which I would not, I would, I would not personally want to hold investments in certain companies. You know, some of those might be us private prisons. And, And we have a good example of that. We, had a member of our union go down as a part of a trade del- union delegation to Nicaragua and met with people working in textile factories who asked us to divest from Gildan. And so we did. We removed Gildan from our segregated portfolio. And so I, I, I think, again, it's like the answer is, yeah, there's some cases where, you know, obviously the, the glaring example is, you know, private prison investments are completely and totally unethical. I mean, it's like it's like investing in landmines, you know, um, so, you know, or, or asbestos. Right. So I, I think there's a lot of. There's a lot of stuff like that where we do say, yeah, we don't want to invest in this. But at the same time, I think that the, the reality for for a union like ours is that or, or any union or anyone that in, in the market is that, is that, you know, money depreciates the second you hold it really like the second you get paid, the second that we get you know, money in our strike fund, the second that you get money in your pension fund, the value of that money starts to immediately depreciate because as anyone knows, the costs of food, fuel, rent, goods, services, they're all increasing all the time. And of course, that means the value of the money that you used to buy those things is, is proportionally decreasing. And so the only way to even keep up is to spend all your money at once. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. Got um, it. <laughs> you know, just, just it's, it's the, the, the uh, sophisticated investment you know, relation to the market is just basic. Everyone has to do it for retirement security if they can afford to do it. And and really the problem we have is that most people are in a position where they can't afford to do it because they're living paid paycheck to paycheck. This rentier, you know, asset inflation bubble driven economy that's designed to benefit people that can basically pull extract value, you know, from from these assets. And and so you know it's of course as a union, should we be ethically investing our money to make good returns so that our members right now haven't had to pay into our strike fund for the last two and a half years, right? The strike fund's been totally self-funded since, sorry, since the end of 2016, the strike fund. So almost, yeah, so almost three years now, the strike fund has been totally self-funded by investment returns. Even when, you know, the other year we had, we spent seven and a half million on strikes, we had that huge strike in the casino sector. We had some other, some other strikes, and and we paid for all of the strike pay out of investment returns, and not a cent of members' money went into it. Which means that the dues members pay to belong to their union 
really gets to be focused on and go to the frontline servicing, to education, to organizing, to the things that are really important to the membership. And so the strike fund's always been a bit of an insurance policy and members in our union said, well, you know, why do I always pay into this thing if we, you know, we, we barely go on strike. We're such a large union that we don't know which part of the union's going to go on strike. But the simple fact it exists is an incredible lever on bargaining and incredible value. It's it, we, the strike fund right now is over $90 million, right? So, you know, we're meeting and exceeding our target of over a thousand dollars per member, uh, purely growing it on investment returns. And now we've turned the strike fund into an endowment fund for strikes. So I, I think, I mean, I think the utility, it's hard to argue with the utility of investing in the market. And, but while we're doing it, let's, Hey, let's do it ethically. And as it turns out by ethically investing, we're also making more money. So, What's next for this year? You said you're filing some proposals. Is there anything exciting that you can share with us? I'm I'm excited about everything. Right now, we are about to file a really interesting proposal at Canadian National Railway. And it's about, it's asking the company to do an analysis of the discrepancy between executive pay and the pay of the average worker. And I think this is such an interesting, an interesting proposal to not ask just this company, but but as a thing that can be done inside of the space as an investor. So CN is currently talking about laying off about 1,600 workers. And if it was making executive compensation decisions differently, what, what could that mean for some of those workers that might be laid off? And... You know, we we have recently filed um, on the subject of private prisons that I that I mentioned earlier. We've actually directly filed a proposal at the Royal Bank of Canada. Did some analysis of of the remaining uh, investors in uh, Core Civic and Geo Group, which are the two primary private prison firms that uh, operate the the majority of the facilities that are detaining migrants and children. And while about seventy five percent approximately of of an of investment. Um, has been has been pulled out of of these 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 firms. There's still some noted Canadian investment in in these in these uh, in these two companies, and and so we're, we're basically um, asking RBC to release a human rights uh, policy related to those investments. And then there's uh, it's shocking that that doesn't exist. It, it's shocking that that doesn't exist. I I agree and with yet you. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um, and then we've got a couple more asking for a advisory vote on executive compensation. So giving uh, investors the ability to vote on whether or not they agree with the compensation package that uh, executives has, have set for themselves. And that is a another metric of accountability. Can you justify why you are paying your executives how much you're paying them? And if you can't, why not? And I think that's a, you know, we're going to see that change in the in Canadian legislation um, in, in the years coming. But until we do, I think this is a really smart and strategic thing that everyone can get on board with. Investors can get on board with it and it, it enhances their ability to uh, understand how how decisions are being made. It's a it's a it's a metric of accountability. And also it just seems like a very reasonable thing to do. Um, and then heading into next year, we've got a number of proposals on everything from uh, environment, climate change, human rights, and a whole bunch of other things. So it's just uh, it's really interesting and exciting. So the other thing is, this isn't strictly a, it's not strictly filing shareholder meeting, motions at these governance meetings, these kind of Byzantine governance meetings that take place in a, you know, a hotel room lobby somewhere. Like there's actually a, a social engagement 
portion of this. There's like a social engagement. There's a public media campaign portion of this that's really impactful. And I think that's one of the things that sets sets out this program and everything Emma's doing on behalf of the union and, and you know, and with, of course, a team of people is that somewhat of a team of people. I think, I think you know, it's, it, you know, there's there's an infrastructure Sometimes in place. Sometimes we carpool to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think, you know, one of the things is that there's, because Emma's got this amazing skill set of doing these social engagement campaigns on top of this as well, that there's an effectiveness here that, you know, there's other groups in the space that do proxy votes and shareholder campaigns, but they're all hidden there. It's all very opaque from even the, the general public. And I think one of the things we found is that, I don't know, there's a number of campaigns we got some excellent media attention on that, that really highlighted these issues in a, in a broader way. And, and in fact, makes them more effective because the companies are much more receptive when people are noticing the impact on their brand. Thanks for adding that. I think that's a, a great, great, great point. But yes, we did. Um, we filed at Saputo, um, a big dairy company in Quebec a few times. You know, this year we got a, a verbal commitment from the company that it was going to be looking into releasing a policy on food waste. And while this might not sound very impactful when you think about one of the largest dairy producers on the entire globe not having a food waste policy and then adopting one, that's really remarkable. And these types of things happened because of our shareholder engagements, because they're important issues. And we're making sure that that media and the public are getting kind of are, are aware of what's going on inside of these meetings. Yeah. And so I think that that's really positive. And as part of it is while we are trying to enhance our investment, I also want the average person who has no idea how these systems and structures work to understand a little bit. You know, if, if, if one thing comes from this, I want a worker to be like, you know what, this this system might seem really obscure and really it might seem really obscure to me. But I now understand just a little bit more than I did yesterday. And I understand that at the end of the day, I have a voice and I have and I understand a little bit about how these companies operate. And that, I think, is revolutionary and in its own right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you both for this illuminating conversation. I just want to give you both a chance to leave me with some thoughts. You know, the bigger the bigger question, I think, for us is we're, we're seeing this resurgence of left wing and labor centric parties across the world and the and the labor parties and the groups and social movements that can't reinvent themselves or can't properly articulate or grasp the issues that working people like our members are facing. Uh, you know, the fact that our members are struggling here in, in BC to make ends meet, to pay rent, to pay their mortgages, to, you know, um, have even the same quality of living they enjoyed five or 10 years ago is it's devastating. And I think we're seeing it all around the globe. And I think that the uh, progressive parties and organizations and movements that represent those aspirations are, and have picked up on that and are, you know, are clearly articulating the problems that we're seeing are the ones that are successful. And I think that whether or not Corbin or Bernie wins, it's more a big question of what can we learn from um, that model and, and being able to, first of all, be able to listen to the people that, you know, we represent and articulate those interests in a way that builds popular support for those positions. And that, that's something that we have to grapple with as a union more and more. And I think, get better at. And I think this, this program, and I think a lot of the work Emma's doing and a lot of the work you guys do in research interactive services, I think really helps engage, um, or, or better our practice. And it's just a matter of just getting better and better at that. Uh, Emma. Yeah. I hope that we expand this work. I hope that it is, um, I hope that we bring more workers into these conversations. I hope that, I hope that more unions get involved 
I hope that companies take notice. I hope that we see shifts in policies inside companies. And I feel like we are on the the right track to that. I'm so excited that the BCGU is is leading on this front. And I just feel like it's really important, critical work that needs to be done. So I think if we, if we do end up publishing this podcast, then some uh, inspired stewards or activists or leaders from other unions will be engaged or motivated, I think, to do look at look at the viability of some of this work. And, and we're obviously looking at trying to set up a, you know, a proper investment vehicle that would aggregate some of this work as well, because we think we've got a lot to offer uh, on the investment side with what we've done and with our the sophistication we have from investments. So it's, it's, this is always an iterative process and progressive, but you know, the, I think what we're grappling with here in Canada is the, is that the work isn't necessarily coming out of labor centrals and necessarily won't necessarily come out of labor centrals. And so I think, you know, unions that have the economy of scale have, have kind of the obligation to do it. So that's, mm. that's maybe the best way to go. And I'd love to, you know, hear from members what they think and, you know, what podcasts they'd like to see. I know I already have some ideas, but I think this is pretty exciting. Thank you, everyone, for listening uh, to the very first episode of the BCGU podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, please reach out to us on social media at BCGU. Um, so that's it for me, from Paul, from Emma, uh, from Burnaby. This has been the BCGU podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.